I take refuge in Buddha, I take refuge in Dharma, I take refuge in Sangha. This is the Ancient Way Session 2017. Life is precious to us. Even in a most dim and contracted state, our own well-being is precious to us. And taking care of this life, a call that can't be silenced. It's a kind of compassion that is always on display. The inability to not be taking care. And if our vision of our life is big, then our caretaking is big. And if our vision of our life is shrunk, then our caretaking becomes shrunk. But the sympathy for life is always on display. Numbing out is a gesture of taking care, strategy. Longing to not exist is a gesture of care, strategy. Longing to thrive is a gesture of care. If we view ourselves and others as little life bubbles, on the periphery of other life bubbles, or if we view ourselves as like meat computers. <laughs> I know from talking to some of you that you believe you're a meat computer. If we view ourselves as meat computers carried around by meat suits, surrounded by others with whom we have to jockey for position and prove our worth, then our territory and responsibility, in a way, becomes very clear. It's clearly partitioned. It's clearly limited. It's safe, and it's binary. My meat computer's in here, and yours is out there. But this view, seemingly rational, seemingly reasonable, invites a haunting calls forth a particular kind of ghost. We become haunted by the ghost of out there. When we're haunted by the ghost of out there, we live in relationship to something we are not certain of. We live in relationship to something we have not experienced, that we cannot experience. The ghost of out there is something that seems to exist, but it can't be verified. We've never experienced anything but this moment. Whatever comes up is the shape of this moment. But because I have a feeling of out there, but have not directly experienced it, even my uncertainty is uncertain. And so I worry about thoughts that others out there with their brains in there may be having about myself in here. But I can't be certain about that. So I'm haunted. And haunted by out there, I may, I may live in an ambiance of vagueness. My desire, my spotty image of my real life out there 
has me not fully plant my feet where I actually stand. My longing to know what's on the other side, around the bend in the promised land, has me not fully open my eyes to this place. It keeps me from really opening my ears to these sounds. And so the vivid world doesn't arrive for me. The vivid world is not found here. And the people, the beings in my mandala, are sacrificed to that spirit of elsewhere. And my practice, my life, my only life here and now, shrunken, contorted, sacrificed, put on the altar, offered up to the spirit of out there, to elsewhere. This is not ignoring. Not knowing, or knowing what you actually know, is not nihilism. It's meeting what presents itself. It's attending to what comes forward for us. It's making this heart a big portal. We're recognizing that this heart is a big portal and aspiring to greet whatever happens to stroll through. It's kind of scary. So I offer you this Bodhi mind. I offer up the stewardship of an inclusive and available self. My sphere is not on the periphery of your sphere. Your sphere of care not in the periphery. How you care for your universe the only one you know exists is how the universe is cared for. How you care for your universe, your universe, the only one you've ever experienced, is how the universe is cared for. Because what other life, what other place can be cared for? So we start each morning in this tradition Vast is the robe of liberation. A field of benefaction far beyond form or emptiness. I wear the Buddha's teaching freeing all beings. I wear the Buddha's teaching freeing all beings. When you are using doubt's eyes, these things we chant sound like sentimental motivational devices designed to reduce your pain and convince you you're actually doing a good thing at four in the morning. They're like posters on a dentist's wall. Life is great. The big, big sunset. And that's doubt size. But when we have an intuition of what now is, what now includes, what is the self, the verse of the Kesa is a celebration of what's going on, plain and simple. It's just telling it how it is, straight talk. Because we've only ever known this life. You have always been here for it. 
ordained life, for example, is this getting down to business and taking care. And you take on the robe in that particular way. There's many ways to take on the robe. You take on the robe in that particular way because you know that by getting down to business and taking care, you're brought to life. You're brought to a certain kind of love by taking care. So practice means here or somewhere out there, we get down to business and take care. Take care in a way that feels meaningful, that enlivens us and others, that's wholesome. So the ancestors and awakened teachers have all said, in one way or another, be meticulous. Be meticulous. Moment by moment, watch your step. Moment by moment, watch your step. So in the atmosphere of the inner critic, we misinterpret non-judgmental awareness as an invitation to live a sloppy life. Because who in the Dharma would judge good or bad? Who can say what's right or wrong? Who can say what's strong or weak practice? And we misunderstand. We misunderstand what it means to be meticulous, what it means to live the Dharma in our every action. So awareness is not an invitation to live a sloppy life. In fact, the great masters thought it was quite the opposite. Padmasambhava, the transmitter of the lineage to Tibet, regarded as the second Buddha in that culture, said, though my view, my experience of reality is as vast and spacious as the sky, my attention to actions and their results is finer than barley flour. Though my view is vast and spacious as the sky, my attention, my carefulness, my meticulousness with body, speech, and mind is finer than barley flour. So outside and apart from details, where will you find your life? Apart from our moment-by-moment actions of body, mouth, and mind, how will we save this being from a suffering, neglected life? If not, for all of this, how would the goodness, the brightness of reality manifest? There's a koan, Yunmen's Every Adam Samadhi, and it's something like this. A monastic had been reading the Avatamsaka Sutra, which speaks of many things. It's like this much long. But one of the things it speaks of is the Samadhi of limitless, all-pervading body of Buddha, present in every mote of dust, revealed in every atom. And so she asked Yunmen, what is the every atom 
samadhi? What is the every atom absorption? And Yunmen said, rice in the bucket, water in the pail. What is every atom samadhi? Rice in the bucket, water in the pail. Is a grain of rice large or small? And from what perspective? Is a drop of water precious or trivial? Isn't the pail filled with drops? Don't they fall from the sky continually, way too long? The bucket is piled with grains. And yet there's no shortage of food. Another teacher of old said, you should practice as if you were carrying a bowl of hot oil on your head. The spirit of your practice should be as if you had a bowl of hot oil on your head. There's a Jim Harrison poem. He says, I once thought that life's what's left over after I extricate myself from the mess. I was writing a poem about paying attention and microwaved a hot dog so hot it burned a beet red hole in the roof of my mouth. Chanting a sutra, the monk stepped fatally on the viper's tail. Every gun is loaded and cocked. In my first week, the monastery here, I managed to turn over a whole bowl of breakfast yogurt and cover the table, and it flowed onto the floor. And so for many of us, Zen calls forth, Zen calls forth our anal retentive inner perfection parts. Is it the straight rows or the round cushions or the black robes? I I have no idea. Zen calls forth our anal retentive inner perfection parts, and I've tried that over and over and continually fail. So this week, I poured soy milk all over the Oriyoki table (laughs) and gave my rakasu a cleaning, and I couldn't pretend that it was somehow intentional, though... (laughs) My first instinct was to act non-attached. I'm still not clear whether acting non-attached or being non-attached, what the difference is. But I'm a klutz. I'm a capital K klutz. After having done this for a little while, one just straightforward piece of advice is, it's good to lose face. It's really good to lose face. It's such a burden. It's good to lose face as soon as possible. Another story, a couple of years ago, I was in line for Sanzen at another monastery, trying to keep my cool in front of the senior monks as I started shaking from holding my nervous bowels. And I had beads of sweat forming on my forehead and faint but consequential farts leaking out. And I finally gave in 
And I told the monk uh, running the interview line that I had to go. So that's part one. Then continued later that week. That same week, I pulled my back trying to impress people with how wholeheartedly and one-pointedly I could shovel loads of gravel. I thought maybe somebody would notice like, just, how, just how on that guy is during work practice. He's got so much key. And then uh, at lunch, a couple days later, the same interview line monastic said to me, well, you're a delicate little flower, aren't you? <laughs> ah! <laughs> That's not the image I want you to have of me. Such a relief. That's a direct quote. Well, you're a delicate little flower, aren't you? So these things don't crush my spirit so much anymore. How could they not? This is now this moment, and now this moment. meticulous practice, this moment is neither connected nor disconnected. This self is neither that one or not that one. Neither a klutz nor not a klutz. It's like the Yiddish Heart Sutra. So I have many things to many people. I'm existing in many minds. Well, which one is the true reflection? Where does the actual Jogan reside. And how can I find out? I mentioned earlier that we should know why we gather back the outflowing energy of mind and concepts, back to the vivid direct breath, sound, body, koan, whatever your method. And please be clear on your method as there's more and more spontaneous teaching in the Zendo. We should know why we're doing that. If we don't know, if we don't yet get the why of devoted and unstinting practice, its novelty wears off on us. It becomes mechanical. We start finding it wary. And we start floating away on habitual mindship. But when we know why, or have a memory at least of knowing why, we know that drop by drop, and mind moment after mind moment, we fill the bucket. And we know that drop by drop, we're tasting the genuine juice of life. And we don't know where that's headed exactly, but we don't need to know where that's headed because it tastes just right, right on the spot. So I want to read from great ancestor Dogen Zenji's Gyoji, Continuous Practice. Dogen's view is vast, and his appreciation of this life is so deep and so subtle. I read him, and I get the sense that I'm living in a black and white world compared to somebody so alive, so sensitive to what's actually happening. 
But I also realize if I, re if I hear Dogen or read him from my ordinary mind, then I just don't get what he's talking about. I, I don't get where he's coming from. So somehow I have to resonate with his state of mind. I used to spend long hours just sitting in my room doing Zazen with Dogen, which meant I would sit, and then I would read a passage from Shobogenzo or something, then I would sit, deepen, and I'd go back in. It was a kind of um, Sanzen. But I'd like to do a guided you know, meditation so then maybe we can resonate with the mind he's, he's speaking from and then, then listen to his words. So if you wish, make yourself receptive. And this is uh, pointing out on the nature of experience. And so everything I'm saying I'm speaking about direct experience and encouraging us to look at our, our direct experience. Direct experience means now. It doesn't mean something invisible or something hidden. It means what can you actually know. And so first, let's just start by um, maybe pacifying the rational mind. So let's affirm that all we have is experience. All we have is experience. So affirm that your life in this moment, which is all we have, which is all we know, which is all that is real, is color and shape moments, pressure, heat, coolness, movement, sound moments, thought moments, taste moments, space moments. Affirm that what I call my life, whatever that is, it's experience. It's moments of experience. We can't get outside of experience. So affirm right now that your life consists of some configuration of color, shape, sound, coolness, heat, pressure, movement, thought. It's basic. So this moment, our only moment, is experience. And the thing about it being only experience, that means we can't touch the backside. You have no knowledge, you have no valid experience of what's on the inside of me. You have no knowledge, you have no actual experience of what's behind the wall. You might have the experience of a concept of a memory of what's behind the wall, but you don't have direct experience. In fact, we don't touch experience at all. You can't say we ever even make contact with it, because it doesn't abide. Roshi yesterday talked about the present moment slipping through your fingers. But no metaphor does this justice. Because you can't touch experience. Try to cling to an experience moment. What does this word clinging even mean? 
you can't hold on to anything. It's just... So there's no arriving of the moment. There's no taking root. Verify that. Affirm that. This is just looking at your, basically looking at your six senses, experiencing. Experience doesn't arrive. To say it's there is only a matter of speaking. It doesn't have a referent. Look at the texture of your hands. Tingling is not a hand. Pressure is not a hand. Color is not a hand. Contour is not a hand. So next, affirm that experience and awareness are two words for the same thing. Experience is awareness. There's no seeing between the two. There's no extra light. There's no extra mind oozing out the edges. Experience and awareness, just different words for the same, expressing the same. So our usual view has a dualistic error. For example, we have a fuzzy sense that there is a hearer, which is me. There's the act of hearing, something the me does, and the sound out there that is heard. But that's not an actual experience. It's a fuzzy idea. I hear the act of hearing in the herd. It's not an experience. But it's a belief that most of us have and feel and live the consequences of. So let's, let's explore this. So as we go through this, you try to keep your mind stable, vivid, and alert. Because that's the platform for which we can look into, look beyond the common notion of things. So first, just another affirmation. Let's remember that hearing is not a matter of volition. Volition means that I can intend it to be one way or another. Raising my hand is a matter of volition from one perspective. Verify that hearing, and for that matter, feeling and seeing, is not a choice. It's something obvious. You can't turn it off. The most you could do is make an effort to change what you're hearing. So you plug your ears, it's, it's roaring with sound. Even in sleep, sound. Hearing is, in a way, always. It's always full. So right now, attend to hearing. 
and affirm that there is no moment of contact between sounds and hearing. There is no mind traveling and arriving at a sound. And there are not sounds arriving at hearing. Sounds and hearing are one and the same. They don't meet and they don't part. You can have a thought about a sound after the intimate knowing, but that's after the intimate knowing. Hongzhir said, what is spoken is instantly heard. What is heard is instantly spoken. Just see that it's true as these sounds come out of this mouth. There's no moment of hearing. There's just sound. Just chirp. Just rustle. Just voice. We don't directly experience an act of hearing. How long is sound awareness? Doesn't it seem like sounds come and go? Like waves swelling and fading away? Obviously that's true. Don't experience one continual unchanging monotone. However, see if you directly experience an absence of sound. You can experience changes in tone and dynamic range. You can directly know timber. You can directly know pitch. Can you directly know an absence of sound? If you say, yes, I hear it, then you heard something. So listen to the alwaysness of sound. So next, let's turn to the sense of the subject. The subject, the, the knower. We may verify, yes, sound and the knowing of sound are indivisible, are one. But there's certainly a hearer of sound. There's certainly a self that hears sound. Otherwise, how would I say sound? Otherwise, it, who is it that's testifying to the fact of always hearing with no seams? this point bears closer investigation. In the Komyo Zanmai, further along, uh, Ejo Zenji said, the primary reason that we all don't appreciate the seamless, ever-present light of experience is the view of a self. There's something seemingly dark in the way. There's something encrusting the light. So let's investigate this sense of the knower, the self that is aware that sound and hearing are one. So refresh your attention. Forget all the jumble of words.
and release the attention, not focusing on anything in particular. Let it float open, but keep it vivid and undistracted. Concentrate, but not on anything in particular. Just concentrate right where it is. Keep returning to that open, unsupported concentration, awake. Sustain that. Now notice the feeling of there being one at the center. Notice the feeling of the knower or or the me being the recipient of the show. Maybe your practice is to the point where you don't really have that so strong, but you could invoke it. Put your attention on the feeling of being the one at the center. Very ordinary sense of, here I am. And see if you can zero in on the sense of the one at the center, maybe inside the head, hearing sounds. The common feeling is that something is being piped in from the environment through our our ear ports. So if the hearer is actually there, if the self that cognizes sense data is truly there, we should be able to experience something about it. If we can't actually experience something about the self that we assume hears and feels and thinks, then why are we so fixated on this thing that we don't experience? So some of you might remember Dan Brown talked about the importance of emptiness practice is you may say, oh, there's nothing in there. I know that. But that's like being upstairs and very deep into the night you hear a loud sound downstairs and your hair stands on end because you think something's down there. But instead of actually picking up your baseball bat and your flashlight and going down and checking, you just say, ah, everything's okay. Nobody's in the house. It doesn't put you at ease in the slightest. It's just a concept. It's just a belief. It has no power. So anyway, vivid, clear, open, turn to the sense of there being, it's a very ordinary and reasonable sense of there being one who's hearing sounds, located within your head or your heart or wherever, the feeling of being at the center, knowing. And look directly, what are the qualities of this knower? Something is there, it should have qualities. What are the qualities of this knower? You may notice thoughts moving. And just affirm, those are thoughts. Thoughts aren't the knower of sound. Affirm that. If thoughts were the knower of sound, sound would be discontinuous, because thoughts come and go. 
So affirm the movements of mental wavering, image and sound, they can't be that which knows. They're just thoughts. You know, staying present with this feeling of being the one at the center. Notice the the feeling behind the eyes or the sensations of the face or the head. And probably there's some constellation of subtle sensation moving in the face or the head. And just verify, those are feelings. Feeling behind the eyes, pressure, maybe warmth, maybe movement. There's a feeling of the face, maybe temperature, tingling. But those feelings behind the eyes, those feelings of the face, they're not the knower of sound. It's kind of ridiculous. Those feelings, those those subtle sensations that we feel in this area, they're not the knower of experience, they're simply feelings. Where is the evidence of this one who knows? Well, how about the very quality? The very feeling of being present and being aware here and now. Just affirm that you are or there is awareness here and now. You're not a lump of wood. So obviously, awareness experience is reality. What are the qualities of being present, of being aware? See if you can zoom in or dial in to awareness itself. Does it have a color? Does it have a shape? Does it form fit to the inside of your skull? Well, if so, how would you, from what vantage point would you know that? Is it filling up your body like water in a jug? Well, if that was the case, from where would you know it? Look directly at awareness with awareness. Does it have a shape? or a location, or a color. If it had one of these, it'd have to have all three of them. What are the qualities of that which is aware? What can you put your finger on? If I put an orange on the table in front of you, clearly you could say there's a shape, there's a color, there's a location at least conventionally speaking. But this awareness, where is, what are its evident qualities? What can you point to? What can you say about being aware? Can you say you have awareness? 
do you feel that you have awareness? If you do, where is the one that has awareness? How many of there are you then? There's a sense that you have awareness, that you're a meat body with a meat computer. Somehow the chemicals are just right and there's consciousness. With what are you aware of that? Are there three awarenesses, two? One in your corner of your skull looking at the awareness over there? It's ridiculous. The quality of being aware, although you can't pin down anything specific, affirm that. Affirm that by looking, seeing it's ungraspable, and yet. Experience awareness. Now shifting again, affirm that awareness is unceasing. Verify in your direct experience that it's always right here. Sometimes it's inclusive. You hold all six senses. Sometimes it's contracted. Sometimes it's one sense. Filling the field. Now, as far as not having experience, not having awareness, not being the owner of awareness, means it's not personal. It doesn't belong to you. And yet, it's not some other person's experience. What we call other, peri- other people are the experience of this experiencing. With what do you know other? the same mind that knows self. With what awareness do you know this shape? The same awareness that sees yours, that sees the room, that hears the sounds. So indulge me a little bit more. Back to the feeling sense of the knower. The feeling sense Being cognizant and awake. Dial into that and ask, how old is this awareness? And no thought, no story is speaking. How old is this awareness before thought? When did it come into being? The power is in the asking, not in the, oh yeah, I've heard this one before. When did this come into being?
from awareness as awareness, ask, what is the intention of this awareness? What is the vow of this awareness? What is the aspiration of this awareness? What's the perspective of this awareness on this, this struggling, klutzy personality? How is it seen? How does it regard this body? What quality does that awareness regard its body, these bodies? So I'm going to read some of Dogen's NG and try to listen with a bit of this loosened up fixation on the sense of who we are. Whenever I read and try to comment on Dogen Zenji, I feel embarrassed. And my heart rate accelerates. But hopefully he can mostly, though I'll say some things, speak for himself. Continuous practice. This was written in 1242. Dogen Zenji said, On the great road of Buddha ancestors, there is always unsurpassable practice, continuous and sustained. It forms the circle of the way and is never cut off. Between aspiration, practice, enlightenment, and nirvana, there is not a moment's gap. Continuous practice is the circle of the way. This being so, continuous practice is unstained. It's not forced by you or others. The power of this continuous practice confirms you as well as others. It means your practice affects the entire earth and the entire sky in the ten directions. Although not noticed by others or by yourself, it is so. Practice is details. Details are this moment. This moment is not isolated. This moment is not self-contained. Right now, I manifest as the shape of your moment, as a texture in your moment. These words speak into being the shape of your moment. And your practice, your life, your existence here and now is a texture in the shape of my moment. Your practice is a texture, is a shape in the life of her moment and his moment, everyone's moment. Dogen Zenji says, this great road, this continuous practice is unsurpassable. It's unstained. It's unforced. why it's great. It's unstained. It's unforced. Wherever you go, you breathe in your own fragrance. Wherever you stand, you experience yourself. You can only experience your own experience. 
There's no end to breathing. There's no getting beyond this breath. So he says we breathe in the sky. We walk on the entire earth. We don't walk on a part of the earth. The place where we stand is the entire earth. There's no other earth. He says, accordingly, by the continuous practice of all Buddhas and ancestors, your practice is actualized and your great road opens up. By your continuous practice, the continuous practice of all Buddhas is actualized and the great road of all Buddhas opens up. Your continuous practice creates the circle of the way. Your continuous practice creates the circle of the way. By this practice, Buddha ancestors abide as Buddha, non-abide as Buddha, have Buddha mind, and attain Buddha without cutting off. Now when he says Buddha ancestors, he's speaking of our potential. He's speaking of people who are accomplished. And he's speaking of what we really are outside of the conditioned view in this moment. as I began this talk, when freed up from self-concern, we are naturally concerned for others' well-being. How we express that, the way I express that, how fully I express that, depends on how freed up I am from self-concern. Partly depends on my DNA, my karma. Definitely depends on my view of reality. How I express concern for others depends on my view of what well-being is. Dogen Zenji is partially addressing lineage. So, For example, this monastery and these forms and ways that we uphold and embody. It's a continuous practice of Buddhas. It's a continuous practice of ancestors. When I try to talk about this in a linear way, it doesn't quite hit it. It's always limited. It's always... can't speak multidimensionally. If we had a true lineage chart, it wouldn't be a bloodline trickling down. It'd be a vast web like Indra's net. But, for example, if Maizumi Roshi had decided 40-something years ago that a family woman was not fit to undertake ordination and training. If Chosen Roshi had not put aside her medical career, if Harada Roshi had decided not to bother with confused Americans, if this school hadn't been built, if the Buddha's words weren't memorized and transmitted, if not the trees and the grasses, if not for all the heartache and the longing of so many people for countless generations, if not for that generosity of spirit, if not for that generosity of spirit that imagines future generations, that imagines future generations, there would be no circle of the way. If not for beings thirsty and wary from restlessness, wary, restless beings from the past, the present, and yet to be born, there could be no compassion, there could be no motivation, there could be no aspiration, There could be no meaning to this practice. There could be no circle of the way. There'd be a big gap. 
There's a wonderful koan in the Mumon Khan. With a lot of these koans, every few years when I go back to them, I go, oh. Oh. This koan says, Shakyamuni Buddha and Maitreya. Maitreya is the Buddha that will descend in a future age. Come save us. Shakyamuni Buddha and Maitreya are servants of another. Who is that other? Are you practicing or being practiced? By what means do you lay claim to this practice? By what evidence does it belong to you? Are you practicing or being practiced? Either way, I believe, I deeply believe, the virtue of reducing self-clinging and offering Bodhi mind is plain as day, is crystal clear. Dogen continues, Because of this practice, there are the sun, the moon, and the stars. Because of this practice, there are the great earth and the open sky. Because of this practice, there are body, mind, and their environs. Because of this practice, there are the four great elements and the five skandhas. That is the constituents of this body-mind. Continuous practice is not necessarily something people in the world love, but it should be the true place of return for everyone. Dogen is not shriveled into a little view of Buddhism being the best thing and everything else being bad. He has a much, much bigger view of what Buddha Dharma is, what practice is. Continuous practice is not necessarily something people in the world love, but it should be the true place of return for everyone. Because of the continuous practice of all Buddhas of past, present, and future, all Buddhas of past, present, and future are actualized. Because of the continuous practice of all Buddhas of past, present, and future, all Buddhas of past, present, and future future are actualized. The effect of such sustained practice is sometimes not hidden. Therefore, you aspire to practice. You see something that sparks your faith. You see someone that sparks your faith. The effect is sometimes not apparent. And therefore, you may not see, hear, or know it. You should understand that although it is not revealed, it is not hidden. So what if the feeling that I have a life, I have awareness, It's just a limited belief. What if life, what if awareness has you? If it has you, how does it have you? Sun, moon, and stars. Body, mind, and environs. Four great elements and five skandhas. 
Continuous practice is continuous despite our worst or best efforts. It's unstained. Continuous practice is continuous practice. But how we are brought forth, how we bring forth this world, clearly or fogged over, as a miracle or a burden, as transparent all the way through or thick to the bottom, this is a matter of aspiration and practice, insight and release. This is very personal. This cuts right to the core. And this is our primary concern. And this is our primary responsibility. And yes, not all of the parts of us love it, but through it, all parts of us are amended and redeemed and revisioned and offered up. Thank you.